We're going to be in Acts 17, 1 through 9. This is the word of the Lord. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This is Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men, who have turned the world upside down, have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let him go. Now turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 through 10. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among, for, among you for your sake, and you will become imitators of us and of the Lord, for you have received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you become an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we may not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You may be seated. Thank you. Thank you, Brother CJ. We're thankful for your ministry among us. You know, as in many areas of life, a good example and a faithful model is very important to doing things well. Conversely, a bad model can really get us off the wrong track. That idea of a model or an example is really where we get the, the overall theme of the next uh, several weeks all the way up until Advent. So in that second reading there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7, you see these young believers had become an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. In other words, they became the model Christians for all of Greece. And I thought, what a wonderful prayer that would be for Providence Church, that, Lord, you would be at work among us in such a way that we would be an example to those in our region, those who are really committed to Jesus, a good model of a church. That being said, our, the story uh, today doesn't begin in 1 Thessalonians. It actually begins in the book of Acts. 
Uh, Acts is the first book of her church history. It is written by the physician Luke, and it tells of really Paul of Tarsus' movement around the Mediterranean world, uh, planting the initial churches. And he had a very deliberate method, which you say a lot to be learned from this, but uh, what he did is he'd target initially the synagogues, the assemblies of the Jews. You see, going way back in the the Roman occupation of Palestine, what we now call Israel, that Roman emperors would come in, uh, there'd be a series of Jewish revolts. As a consequence of those revolts, the Roman authorities would disperse the Jews and they'd be scattered across uh, all of the Roman Empire. So what they would do is they'd establish synagogues. And so here's Paul, he's moving around. He thinks he's gonna kind of hook back into Asia. And Acts 16, we have that famous incident of the visit, visitation of the, Ma, uh, the Macedonian man, the man from Macedonia. And he says, you gotta bring the good news of Jesus into Europe. So think of that, the first efforts, all those spires that punctuate the European sky. Who was the first? Well, Paul breaking in into Greece and Philippi. He makes his way down from Philippi and then comes into Thessalonica and goes into the synagogues, and he reasons with the Jews there. This is the first part of Acts 17, showing them that this Jesus was the fulfillment of their scriptures. Uh, If you've been coming to Providence since Easter, you know that was our Easter text this year, uh, to show that the whole narrative of God's redemption story wasn't just something that God, you know, dreamt up and threw out of his pocket uh, randomly, but it's the whole arc of redemption. So he's reasoning with the Jews. Can't you see that this Jesus is the fulfillment of the Hebrew Bible? This is the one you've been waiting for. And some of the Jews are converted by the work of God to following Jesus. But also in these synagogues, there's another group. Did you catch it? It's a group of believing Gentiles or those who believe in one true God. There's a, a name that we put on this kind of thinker that is a, a God-fearer. A God-fearer was a Greek who turned from his polytheism to come follow the one true God, the God of the Jews, who wasn't quite all the way there, but at least had moved from the worship of many gods to worshiping the one God. A lot of reasons for that. You have to think polytheism would be tremendously complicated, wouldn't it? You think, oh, here's the God of the the weather, and here's the God of the soil, and you've got to keep them all happy, and you've got to make the right sacrifices, and they're kind of in competition with each other. It's incredibly complicated to be a polytheist. So a lot of the Greeks... Hear the message of the synagogue. There's one God who made everything, and they're sitting in this synagogue. And here comes Paul. God's acted in history. He's put forth his son, Jesus. Turn from your sins and the ways of worshiping false gods. Turn to Jesus and be saved. And some of the Jews are saved, and you notice 17 in verse 4, and a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. You say the message of the gospel is for everyone. It penetrates the hearts by God's power and in a way that is non-explicable from a human perspective. In this city of Thessalonica 2,000 years ago, people come to faith in the Lord Jesus. But there's always the human element, isn't there? 17 and verse 5, what happens? Makes total sense. Uh, The Jews were jealous. The leaders of the synagogue became jealous that somebody had come in, come in with a message, that that message was more appealing. They said, well, we, we do believe in Jesus. And consequently, they gather the rabble of the town, <laughs> say some, you know, gather the rabble, create, create an uprising, and this thing just, this blows up. 
And as a consequence, Paul and his companions are rushed out of the city and are sent down uh, further into Greece to Berea and ultimately to Athens. So he's there only a short time, that language of being there on three Sabbath days. You see Acts 17 and verse 2. Does that mean he was there for three weeks, a month? Um, not long enough. That's the problem. He's, he's removed quicker than he wanted to leave. So now if you flip over to 1 Thessalonians, not the passage that was read, but uh, ch chapter 2 and verse 17, Paul would say this, we were torn apart from you, brothers, uh, for a short time. Uh, that he was there, he preached, he wished he could have allowed the roots of their faith to grow deeper, but the rabble was stirred up, there was a great riot in the city, and they're scooted out, and he's got to move on. So there's a big question. Say, so what's your question uh, with this story? The, the question is, is this young church going to make it? What chance do they have? Traveling itinerant. Every record we have that Paul was not an eloquent man. He was not a handsome man. He wasn't a particularly persuasive man when he got up to speak. And he preached to a small group of Jews and monotheistic Greeks and told them about what God had done in Jesus for three weeks. Some of them believed it. Now there's a ton of pressure. I don't know, a couple dozen people at best. Lots of pressure from the culture. The Jews and the Greeks say, don't, you know, who is that Paul? He just came in, he clearly wanted money. Look at that guy, comes in, peddles a message, and now he's out of here. Come back and believe in the real gods. What chance do these Thessalonians have? And Paul's anxious, he's in Athens. Did the efforts in Thessalonica, did they make it? And he dispatches the young Timothy. He says, you got to go back and give me a report. Had to be a long, a long time. That had to be, you know, there's long waits in life, but I'd imagine Paul's there. So that had to be very difficult. You dispatch the young guy. Is the church lost? Timothy returns. Good news. Good news, miraculous news. Not only are they strong in the faith, but they've persevered under the pressure that the word of Jesus has gone out from them and it's a strong church. Friends today say, maybe some of us relate to a bit of that story, say I'm an unlikely person to believe in Jesus, but I heard of the good news, not in a particularly eloquent way, but God broke through into my heart that I turned to Jesus and despite the cultural pressure, he's my king. And that pleases God. And that's what we want to think about these upcoming weeks. The model church and standing firm in the faith. So a couple moves we'll make today, really from 1 Thessalonians 1. We'll look at the same passage next week from a different lens. But first, what was it about these Thessalonians? What was it that they apprehended? What was it that they clung to? And so that's uh, really the first po point. And, and it comes from verse 3. This is an extended prayer. All of chapter 1 is an extended prayer from Paul to God. He thanks God for their faith. And specifically, verse 3, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is, the famous triad. And we often think in triads. I mean, you know, three is a good, good thing to get our mind around. Say so God exists in the Trinity. You say, what's the markers? Can we think of a, a great triad of what it means to be a Christian? Say, it's hard to do much better than that. Faith hope, and love. So you said, I heard that before. 
You've been to a wedding this summer? You say, yeah, I heard that famous wedding passage, 1 Corinthians 13. What's Paul say? Faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these are There they are. You're a Christian. Faith, hope, love. I pause there because you think for reasons that maybe we'll get into in a minute, but you, you ask somebody who's not a Christian today, uh, what are the Christians, what's a Christian stand for? Um, I think they'd say, like, they're a voting block. Or, you know, they've got strong opinions about the types of people they're against. I, I have to tell you, in our, I, I don't detect that at all. And our prayer ought to be that we'd be marked not by those types of views, but by our faith and by our love and by our hope. And that's a probing question for me. It's a non-believing neighbors, obviously, like you, people that we interact with, say, they know that I'm a Christian, I'm a pastor. I say, what marks me as different? That I just have a different view of what's happening in our, our messy world? Or is it there's something, he's, he's got a real faith in Jesus. Uh, there's a love there towards the, the church family especially, but neighbors also. And there's a kind of optimism that's not grounded in a faulty idealism that ruins things, but rather a kind of hope that latches on to God is at work and he's in control. And we of all people should be those who look at the future with great hope and great optimism. Those are the marks of a Christian. Faith, hope, and love. The, the Thessalonians got it. Now I know you're, you're, what you're thinking here. You say, these are very nice words. Faith, hope, and love. You know, this is a lot of fluff. You just kind of think of these nice ideas and you try to go up and pull them out of the ether and maybe if you think about them long enough, you'll, you'll do them well enough and you can be, a, you know, a more positive person. Say, that's not the claim. See, in our passage, and we'll look at love later, but here, faith and hope in particular always have an object. So take a look, for example, right, in verse 8 and more on this, but your, your faith in God. Or again, verse 3, right? It is a hope in the Lord Jesus. That faith and hope have objects, that there are content to those things. They're not just ideas in our head, but they're, they're real things. And I would submit to you that the content, what gave the Thessalonians faith, hope, and love, comes to us in a succinct statement of the gospel in verses 9 and 10. Maybe one of the most compact of what is said. What does it mean uh, to be a Christian, what, what's it really about? There might be some elements left out, but this is pretty good. Have a look, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9, the second part. How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Say, awful lot in that. There is a God on high, there's only one God. He's acted in history through his son. The son delivers us from the just judgment of God. God vindicated this story by raising Jesus from the dead and he's ascended up to heaven and he's gonna come again. There's an awful lot there. That's the content of the belief. It's something real, something to be evaluated. Jesus of history. Now, another thing worth saying here, and I hope that when I do this kind of comparative religion thing, it never comes off as if I'm you know, demeaning other people's views, but it's well worth bearing out to say something like that, if that is the content, verses 9 and 10, of what it means to be a Christian, then um, it, it is mutually exclusive with other faith claims in the world. So all the time, I mean, having lunch with somebody, not a Christian, something like this will come out. I mean, there's loads of religious people in the world. They're all pretty decent. I, I, I think it's all the same. They're, they're all doing just fine. 
Say you have Muslim friends, as I have Muslim friends, and you talk to them, say, entry-level question. God here put forth his son into history. In Islam, that's like the, the first heir. God cannot have a son. God's a monad. He has no son. He's not put forth his son into history. God is not triune in Islam. So you've got a choice to make. We can repeat the stuff that our culture says and not think of, say, oh, they're all the same. Or we could say there's a fundamental rule of logic that in every other area of life nobody has a problem with, the law of non-contradiction, and say, I've got a real choice to make. The claim of the content of the gospel, that God has acted in Jesus, his one and only son, or to just be a relativist. And for those of us, members of this church, real Christians, we cannot be relativists. And I say again, in other areas, I, I don't know why this is. You can talk about this at your table, uh, your dinner tables this week. People do not have a problem with this law except in the area of religion, or at least it's why they... So, you know, this morning it was raining. I don't know what it is now, but it was coming down. You could talk to somebody on the way. Is it raining or not? It's, it's either or. Now, there's a, lot, there's a lot of black and white in the world. I get that, but you can't say, well, I, I'm going to duck the question in an effort to not offend uh, the person who thinks differently than me. You say it's just a, a, a fundamental way of, of processing reality. So I'm not picking on other faiths, but I do pray that we are not those who, in an arena where somebody's saying something that obviously is wrong, that we're those who say, well, actually here, there are competing claims, and we Christians believe that God has sent forth Jesus in history. That it's something really, it's anchored there, something to think about. Another sidebar, this is one for your, your kitchen table, so not, not directly in line with what we're talking about, but I was thinking this week, all this historical revisionism, you know, even when I was a grade school kid in the 90s, public school, Jaga County, we had a lot of heroes, the founding fathers were heroes, you had Jefferson, you know, he did some uh, obviously things that were outside of good faithful Christian witness, but it was fair to say that he was a good statesman and he could be evaluated as a good statesman. Now we have this strange climate where you look back at all the historical personages, you find what is most certainly flaws and consequently they're kind of, you know, <laughs> they're out, you know, you can't even mention them. How interesting about Jesus? the most interesting and influential personage in the history of the world, whose record from his own contemporaries say nobody has a go at him. Nobody, I mean, his record is so unlike any other historical person of any consequence, it's striking. Do you ever think about that? Talk about that at the table. Say, why is this? See, everybody else is, seems to have this chink in the armor, but what about Jesus? Look at how well he's endured. Look at his love, the things that he stands for. How'd that happen? Maybe he is who God says he is, the perfect son of God. So our faith and our hope are not just words, but they find their real content in how God has acted in history in Jesus. One final point on this. A lot of people think Christians are not thinkers. So, for example, Bill Maher. You know Bill Maher? I don't watch his show. I read, a, I read an article on him in The Spectator. So, but very interesting guy, political commentator, you know, comedian, uh, really, really dislikes religious people and really dislikes Christians. But here's what he says, things like this. Faith means making a virtue out of not thinking. Or again, those who preach faith and enable and elevate it are intellectual slaveholders. 
So I would, if I could, talk to Bill Maher, say, do you really believe that? You see, it seems to me that our faith from start to finish is an invitation to think about how God has really acted in history, that we talk about the very lofty things in life, like hope and love and the things that really matter, and you, in fact, are the one who's repeating these tropes. And accompanying that, I'm reading a very good little book that I can't get any of you brothers and sisters because it's called How to Think. I don't want to offend you. It'd be like if somebody, you know, got me a book like How to Preach or something. You know, you'd be like, oh. uh, but it's a very good little book called How to Think by Alan Jacobs. And he says something very interesting. He says, we talk about a person thinking for him or herself. He says, Let's, nobody can think for him or herself that thinking is always done with other claims, things that are happening, right? That here's a statement, here's an idea, here's something that happened in history. The thinking's always done in a community with other thinking people who like in heart. And I'm thinking about the way that corporations are going, the way that universities are going, and I think the local church might be the last place any real thinking takes place. That we might be the ones who say, let's evaluate the real claims of history. Think about the things that we all know as humans really matter. That is love and hope and faith and all these ideas. Let's open it up and really press into it. That ours is not a blind faith. It is not uh, an aimless hope. But it is one founded in this great gospel truth. That God put forth Jesus into history that we have incurred the wrath of God that I think deep down we all know. I have not done things that even I would want to tell even those of you I know best about, that I'm embarrassed about things in my past, that at the core I love myself a lot more than I love every person. What chance do I have? Grace of God has been put forth in Jesus. It's the same message. Now, I know you say, well, this is a lot of, you know, thinking. And, you know, you say, well, you're just trying to make us all brains on a stick here. No. Say the faith, the hope, and the love are experienced in the life of the true believer in such a way that they, they come out of us. That you go back to look at it, it's a, it's a work of faith, or you could say a, a, faith that, a faith that works, a love that sacrifices, and a hope that endures. That these things that are very real for us, anchored on the truth claim, come out experientially, that there's no tension, as some would say, the propositional truths of the gospel drives the relational. It's always, well, we never want to decouple the mind from the heart. It's always together to say, look, this is the claim. We got to come to grips with it. And then it sinks down into me and into my life and how I behave. Friends, I wish, I, I wish it is one of the privileges of being a local church pastor. I wish I could, I wish you could see our church as I get to see it. The, I think in three years, I could say millions of little touches of goodness and kindness that have flowed out of our church family, out of your real faith in Jesus. Your real sacrifices of love in time and talent and treasure that have made real differences in the lives of people in Lorain County. And many of you who endured challenging things and discouraging things, and sad things, and your hope in the completed work of Jesus has endured, and in your time of trial, your faith is stronger. Say, I pray just like these Thessalonians that were marked by those things, there's a real faith in Jesus. It manifests itself in how we behave, that we love each other sacrificially, and that no matter what happens, that we, we look forward to the future, that God is at work among us.
Now, you're not a Christian. I'm glad you're here. I say, I wish I had more non-Christian friends. When I became a clergyman, I, I, you know, I haven't had much time to have as many non-Christian friends as I used to, but I'm glad you're here. You know, maybe you're, you're, we're at a church long ago as a child, and you're like, I don't know about that. You drifted from it. Others of you say, Mom and Dad made me come here. I don't know about any of this. Let's look again at verses 9 and 10, the second part. Just think about this. These Thessalonians turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's just look at what I would call here the, the truth claims or the facts, or we could say the nouns. What are the nouns there? God, who's a father, his son, Jesus. There's a resurrection and a heaven and an ascension. There's wrath and judgment and a deliverance. You can see that's a, that's a pretty good arc of what we believe as Christians, right? That I'm aware that there's a God, that uh, I, I need to be saved from myself, that there's the act of grace in Jesus, that he's delivered me from what I deserve, that God's raised him from the dead, he's ascended and he's gonna come again. Say, that's the, that's the arc of what we believe. And as a result, look at the response. There's three verbs in nine and 10, that upon hearing this message, the Thessalonians turn. Can you see that? Say, we call that repentance. That's, a, that's a, a very important word that they say, you know what, the way that I'm plowing through life here, doing my own thing, using my body any way that I want and, and upsetting everybody and I'm, I'm selfish and I, you know, all these things, that in Jesus I, I turn from that, that I can turn and repent of my sins to the true God and then what? Then you serve, to turn, you serve God with all that you are and of course we wait with an excited expectation of the future. Again, you're not a Christian. You're hearing all kinds of stuff out there. You know, I don't know, try a bit harder. World's in a bad place. You know, bad politicians need better educational system. Who knows? Everything under the sun. Will you think about this? There's a God who's acted in history. The same message that the Thessalonians responded to, you respond today. You come to Jesus. Surrender to him. Live for him. Be right with God. It's open to you, before you. That's the claim, to turn to him, as all of us who are members of this church have. So we do well to rest, brothers and sisters, bold heading one, like these, to rest in this great Christian triad, a faith that works, a love that sacrifices, and a hope that endures, anchored in content, manifested in our, con in, in our conduct. Finally, and I'll, I'll be brief here, there's a little line in verse six that we're gonna see again in this letter, and it makes no sense. <laughs> makes no sense to the non-believing world. That's a little bit of the point. For you received, the Thessalonians, you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So does that make any sense to you? They believe in Jesus and they suffer with joy. Believe, suffer with joy. Why would anybody do that? Say, so, well, what I would say is that it is our privilege, like our Lord and King Jesus, that when we really believe in the good news of Jesus, when he confronts the corruption of our hearts, when we do with the courage that he supplies live differently from the world, when we stand where we need to stand tall, that that will come with a degree of affliction and that we, by God's grace, can endure that with great joy. And again, I turn to all of you to think about how we're preparing for this. You know, you talk to some who've 
endured hard things. A lot of what Christians say in hardship is they'll say, um, I was prepared for, for the bad news. I was prepared for the bad diagnosis. How does that happen? Well, something like the first question of our catechism. You remember it? Where's your hope? My hope is that I'm anchored in the completed work of Jesus no matter what happens. That's where my hope is. Not in anything material. People and circumstances will always, always let us down, even the people that love us most. But I, my hope is in the fact that I belong to Jesus and that nothing's going to happen in these upcoming days, weeks, months, if you're a Christian, that's outside of the providence of God, that's outside of his scope for your life, and you can rest in that and have hope. Not to say that it's easy. You can even have a joy because God is at work in you. So can you see that pattern? Makes no sense. Take the easy route. By all means, you got two choices, take the easy one. Something bad happens, you better be bitter about it. Complain more. Be negative. Christians, I believe in Jesus. He's the real king. God saved me. I needed his help. I needed help from the outside. And by all means, when I'm afflicted, may I do so with joy by the aid of the Holy Spirit because in so doing, so that last line, how incredibly countercultural. We're not used to that. We're used to being in the mainstream of culture, very comfortable, a good alignment on basic things like you know, marriage and things like that, basic alignment. Not basic alignment anymore. Hard things. Jesus is king. We believe in him. We're prepared. We're thinking about it. Why? I belong to him. He's my hope. So Christian, in a moment, what we're going to do is celebrate the Lord's Supper. But before we get there, I'll pray in these points. And next week, same passage, different lens on how we're saved, what God did uh, to save these Thessalonians and how he saved us. Father, we praise you and thank you for your word. And I, I know today that a lot of people who just repeat things would say, oh, Christians are these kind of people, these kind of people. I think that may we be those who really deep down might be marked by a sincere faith in Jesus, a love for one another and a love for our neighbor, a hope for Jesus' return and the consummation of all history. And far from being just ideas that we see that we, we, these flow out of what you've done in Jesus and they're really at work in us, Lord, they're at work in our church family. And by all means that what is ahead, none of us can see, we know you can see, and that you would use our study in Thessalonians just like they believed and they were afflicted and handled it with joy. <laughs> may we be those who believe all the more. We may be afflicted, but Lord, that you would give us a joy. And in, in, in return, that, that our church would again be like this church, that, that uh, your word would go out into our region and that many would be saved. So Lord, help this sink in. We thank you uh, for your work among us in Christ's name.